1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'd like for you to imagine like your beautiful fall day. We're setting almost like record-like temperatures here in Waco, and you're out hiking around, and you're by this little creek, and you, and you notice there was just a bunch of garbage, like someone just dumped all this stuff here. And, you know, kind of crazy because there's a garbage can not too far away, and you're like, this is really bothering you. And so you decide, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. And you start picking up all that trash there, and there's this gross little film on the water there. And you spend a couple hours cleaning up and do the best you can. Obviously, there's more work that needs to be done, but you've made a big difference. You put it all in that little garbage can, and you think, you know, I'll probably need to come back uh, probably next day, finish this up here. And you, you come back the next day, and lo and behold, it's as if you were never there. There's just garbage everywhere in the creek. And you're like, what? No way. No one could just come and just dump in the same place. So what you do is you decide, I'm going to figure out what's going on upstream. So you start following the stream up there, and lo and behold, you discover there's a garbage dump, an old one, and this creek seems to run right by, and it's just picking up trash and bottles and cans, and it's bringing them down river. You know that if you're going to really resolve the garbage situation downstream, what do you need to do? Well, you're going to have to resolve it upstream, right? I tell you that because we see in our life, we see some garbage, some things that, you know, this is painful and ugly and needs to be addressed. But the problem is we sink so much time, energy, and money, and I'm speaking of the church in general, on trying to do a little garbage cleanup on the outside, when in actuality, what we really need is absolute heart transformation and deal with the dump that is going on in our heart. And when we come to the book of First Thessalonians, that's exactly what had happened. These Thessalonians, they didn't uh, just like try to clean up their act or adopt a few Christian principles. What actually took place was what we would call transformation. They believed the gospel and they turned to God from idols. They believed in Jesus. For the Jews, they believed that he was the Messiah. For all these Gentiles and pagans, they showed how he is. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He entered into humanity, lived a perfect life dies on a cross to actually satisfy God's just wrath against sin and rose again three days later to give to anyone who believes genuine, eternal, spiritual life. This is called the gospel, and they believed it. And what they had done is they turned from idols to God. How do you and I experience a vibrant life in Christ and overcome these idols of the heart? Well, look and see what they did. First Thessalonians chapter 1 Verses 9 and 10. We looked at this last week, but I want you to see it. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, an idol is, it could be anything. It could be any attitude, belief, any God, anything that captures a person's attention in such a way that it grabs their allegiance. And what happens is God and his truth no longer have preeminence. And when we hear the word idolatry, we oftentimes think of people bowing down to little figurines and rocks, statues and sticks and stones, things like that. And you know what? That happens around our world. But idolatry is far more widespread than just some of these visual displays falling down to some makeshift idol. Idolatry of the heart is universal. 
And we are so good at making idols, we can turn pretty much anything into an idol. And it takes place internally. And this is something that we're rather familiar with. Everybody worships something. And those aren't my words. Um, there's an American writer and intellectual by the name of David Foster Wallace. And uh, Wallace was at the top of his profession as an American writer and as an intellectual. Uh, he was a award-winning, best-selling author and novelist. And he had committed suicide in 2008. Before his death, he gave a rather famous commencement address. And this is what he said in part to the graduating class. His words. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. goes on to say, you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power? You'll feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect? Being seen as smart? And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What we're talking about here, friends, is idols of the heart. And last week, we went through a wide variety of what these idols of the heart are and what they look like. And based on the conversations and emails, we have significantly stirred up the fish tank. Because idolatry seems to be rather prevalent even in our own hearts. Don't you see it? I mean, just to review some of the things, I mean, we... Turn an idol out of all sorts of things. Family, children, false religion, rituals, career, money, achievement, critical acclaim, social standing, relationships, peer approval, image, achievement, comfort, competence and skills, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, great political or social causes, your morality and virtue. You know what? We're so good at making idols out of anything. We can take Christian ministry and what? Make it an idol. Anything that you find your sense of purpose, meaning, security, identity, what you think about, what kind of drives a lot of where your financial resources are going, friends, if it's not God, you likely have an idle problem. And what happens is we take good things and we make them into God things. And when we do that, friends, that's idolatry. Anything that supplants the preeminence of Jesus in your life, your functional idol, if anything, it's, it's beyond, anything other than Jesus, you've got an idolatry issue. And, uh, you know, we see this. Like, for instance, we see it like in sports. And like, look what's going on in our culture. And what happens is we, we just put all this focus on, like, athletic achievement. And we like to think, well, yeah, of course, you know, folks can handle it. But you, you do this with kids, and they don't do as well. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had a pretty sizable youth group. Uh, we had one of our kids. He was a leader in our youth group, very popular kid. 
Um, I met with him on lots of different occasions. Uh, he was a leader in our ministry. On the occasion that I was meeting with him on this one particular time, uh, it was to address the subject that he was now failing out of school while he was one of the stars of the basketball team. And talking with him, I remember seeing the intensity of his eyes, and he just said, Grant, all I can think about is basketball. And he talked about, like, man, there's just there's this rush. You're out on the court, you make some great play, and, like, people are screaming, and then afterwards they can't wait to come talk to you and tell you how great you are and what a good job you're doing. And it's like they, they take time out of work, time out of their life, just to be and see me play, to be there. Grant, all I can think about is basketball. You could say that hoops had a heavy hold on his heart. It's not just athletics, though. Let me give you one that's super prevalent. Um, I'll give you an example. Jimmy Fallon. He talks about his idol of work, and he did so in an interview that he had conducted with Rolling Stone magazine. Don't recommend that you read the magazine. I think you're familiar with Jimmy Fallon. He's a very famous comedian. He's got a late-night talk show. Very funny guy. And in this article, he actually talks about his idol of work. Let me just read you some excerpts. Uh, Fallon, when his drive in his career, he made a vow, and he said this, quote, I remember saying to myself, if I don't make it on Saturday Night Live before I'm 25, I'm going to kill myself. It's crazy. I had no other plan. I didn't have friends. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything going on. I had my career, and that was it. And so it would be easy to see, like, you know, this guy, Idala, uh, has work as an idol in his life. But why? What drives this? I mean, what's driving this kind of behavior? Looking to your job to be your savior. Well, you don't have to guess. The article actually discloses it as they probe this issue with him. And so it says, Fallon is not so sure what drew him so fiercely to comedy, to making people laugh. He said, I never went to a therapist. I don't want to know. But he does maybe venture a guess. It was a rush. I think it was the rush of getting a reaction. Maybe it's acceptance. Maybe it's a thing where you're pleasing somebody, and I want to be friends with everybody, and if you make a joke and everyone laughs, you're like, that's it, I scored. And that's what I thought making a friend was. You just feel like people like you, so maybe it was that acceptance, this deep drive of acceptance, this approval. I I want people's approval. Friends, what this is is idolatry. And, it, and it, it just manifested in your idol of work. But it's like, but I want to be accepted. I want recognition. I want achievement. Friends, this is what idolatry looks like. And it's universal. And anything can be an idol. I mean, counterfeit gods, they exist everywhere. And they will always disappoint. If you're trying to make your life out of an idol, you're going to find that it will, it's going to like start twisting you and destroying you. It will always disappoint. And you see this. Idolatry just shows up everywhere. I mean, like, issues like perfectionism and workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control others' lives. What's going on? It's these idols that are driving, twisting, and contorting. Remember the uh, financial crisis we had in 2008, 2009, and just some of the reactions that took place? There's this one guy I read of. um, He was... Korean businessman, uh, he lost most of his $370 million investment 
This is a word from his wife. When the nation's stock market index fell below 1,000, he stopped eating and went on a drinking binge for days and finally decided to kill himself, which is what he did and what his wife reported to the police. It's interesting, in that same financial crisis in 2008-2009, I read of another guy by the name of Bill. And uh, for Bill, three years prior to the crash, he had become a Christian. And he had made a major transfer of finding his ultimate security, peace, purpose, and identity from money to Jesus. And this is what he said when he went through it. Whoa. You know, if this economic meltdown had happened more than three years ago, well, I don't know how I could have faced it or how I would even kept going. But today, I can tell you honestly, I've never been happier in my life. What? What's going on? You see, this man, he doesn't have idols anymore. He has Jesus. He's real. There's a relationship. His sense of purpose and peace is found him. I'm sure he was very sad about the losses that he experienced. I mean, we all are. If you've got money and you're like, all of a sudden you don't have any more. But, but that isn't where you find your bedrock security, identity, hope, peace, and joy. You know, what happens is we need our idols in order to have an identity. And so we lead out with them in conversation. We are known to be associated with certain people. We have to have a certain look. All of this is indications that we've got probably an idol issue. And our idols are slowly twisting, and they destroy, and they distort. Uh, do you remember the central plot device in the Lord of the Rings? If you ever read the book or you've seen the movies. Okay, you know what it is, don't you? What is it? The ring, right? It is the ring. And it's not just any old ring. It is the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power, right? And what happens is... Whoever has the ring, it starts corrupting them. And whoever tries to use it, it starts twisting them and corrupting them. However good his or her intentions are, if you've got the ring, what happens is it just starts twisting everything. And so what takes place is your heart's fondest desires are magnified into idolatrous proportions. And so, for instance, uh, there were some good characters in the book. And they wanted to do some good things like liberate slaves, preserve the people's lands, uh, bring wrongdoers to just punishment. Those are all good objectives, but when they actually got the ring, the ring made them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. And what it did is it turned even good things into absolute, and it overturned all forms of allegiance. The ring just took on a life of its own. And the wearer of the ring increasingly became enslaved and addicted to it. It was an idol. They, they couldn't live without it. It was like a must-have, and it would drive their behavior. It would even drive them to harm others, even themselves, because it was all about the ring. And that's what idols do. They create spiritual addictions, whether in Tolkien's novel or in our lives. And, friends, I do not want you to end up looking like Gollum. Remember that guy? In case you forgot, there he is, right? I don't want you ending up looking like that. Externally or internally. But I got news for you. If you've got an idol in your life, it's like, my precious, my precious. Remember that? It's all weird. It's like, what's going on there? That's what's going on. That idol took him over. I mean, you know, his name isn't Golem. He had to change his name. 
He actually had another name. It was Smeagol, but uh, they, they changed his name because his idol changed his life. It destroyed it. So I don't want you to end up like that. Hopefully you don't. So how is it that we can experience and really know joy in Christ in the midst of all the idols of this life? Before you walk out those doors, I want you to know the answer to that question. Because that will be the difference maker. Don't understand this. Didn't get it. Checked out. It's highly likely idols will dominate your life. So how do you do it? I got the answer. If you turn your Bible just one page backward, you should end up in the book of Colossians, unless your Bible's falling apart and the books are all misplaced. But if you turn into Colossians chapter 3, this is the answer. It is like a masterpiece. Paul was just had this driving passion of people really understanding relationship with Jesus Christ and the implications of how it is lived out. And this chapter, Colossians chapter 3, is priceless. This ought to be bread and butter for every Christian. Uh, when I was a, a brand new believer in college, the guy that was leading our Bible study, um, I was in a Bible study with guys that needed a lot of help. He made us memorize Colossians chapter 3. And I'm really glad that Brett did. It has been so helpful to me. So how do you do it? Well, verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3, you keep focusing on Christ. Look at it. Therefore... If you have been raised up with Christ, you see that you have literally been identified with Jesus who is resurrected from the grave. That means you got strength. You have peace. You have the ability to walk in God's will. You have the understanding of spiritual truths. There's realities. There's blessings that come with you being raised up with Christ. You are literally united with him. He says, keep doing this. Keep seeking the things above. And this is a present imperative, meaning this is an ongoing lifestyle. You keep actively doing this, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Speaking of the preeminent spot of favor, power, the Son of God, you keep seeking him who is the almighty, the all-powerful. Things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, he says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You literally focus on Christ. It's kind of like you pull out the compass, try to figure out where north is. Your compass will tell you. And so you keep seeking the things above. For why? Look at verse 3. For you have died. See that? And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Literally, you have been united with Christ so that Christ's death is your death to sin. And you've been made alive. You're hidden with Christ in God. And so he says, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, you know, it's really interesting that he writes this about keeps focusing on Christ because I don't know about you, but my heart seems quite alive to sin and temptation. It is still attracted to the very things that I've been saved from. You know what I'm talking about? Good. A few of you do. All right? There is an allurement. But we actively are setting our mind on the things above. You see, when Christ died for us, he died not only uh, for our sin to bear its penalty, but he actually died unto sin, breaking its power. We're pretty good at understanding that Jesus died, paid the penalty for my sin. But Jesus also 
broke the power of sin in the life of the believer by actually uniting ourselves with him. He placed his spirit in us. This is where the powerful transformation of living life differently comes from. It comes from the power of Jesus. And just like it says in verse 4, one day it is going to be revealed that your life has been united with Christ. And I know right now there might be some widespread confusion. We're like, we're not necessarily even sure who really are Christians. I mean, I was in a recent conversation with some high school kids, and they told me that, man, all you have to do is just, just say you believe in a God, and you're, and you're just considered a Christian. Never mind, they can't explain the gospel, nor do they really truly have faith in Christ. You say you believe in God. But one day, those who are truly trusting in Jesus will be revealed. And Revelation 19 gives us this picture. If you want to see what it looks like, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back with the saints. And we will be seen to be with him. Because why? Because we are in him. We're in him now. We believe by faith. And that's what is going to take place. And so what you do is it's not just recognizing the idols, but it is actually rejoicing in Christ. You see, we make idols out of good things. Is it wrong, let me ask you that, this, is it wrong to love your family or to love your work? What do you think? Either you're not thinking, or I see some folks, okay, all right, you got some folks, no, it's not wrong. So it's not wrong to love your family. I would encourage that. It'll make your, a lot happier family life for your kids, really. And you'll actually start to enjoy it. Is it wrong to love your work? No, you can... You should apply yourself. You should do your job with integrity. You should do well. It's one of your major aspects of your ministry. But what you need to do is rejoice in Jesus far more than your job or your family. Otherwise, what happens is idolatry slips in. And you, you know those scriptures like Philippians 4.4, 4, it talks about rejoice in the Lord always. What does that word rejoice mean? It means to treasure And so we treasure Jesus more than any of these other things. And when we do that, those other things, they don't they're not they don't become idols. They actually get the proper perspective. In fact, we can really start to enjoy people and things and our job when we're not treating them like idols. We're rejoicing in the Lord. So how can you and I truly know joy in Christ in the midst of all the idols of life? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, you keep focusing on Christ. It is ongoing. It is active. It is what you need to do now. It's what you need to do when you leave here. Tomorrow, the next day, each day, you keep focusing on Jesus. Think of him. Think of his life. Think of his message. Think of his words. Think of his death. Think of his resurrection. You talk to him. You focus on him. But second, you need to forsake all idols. Look at verse 5. Therefore... As a result of who we are in Christ, this relationship with Jesus, therefore consider the members or the the parts of your body, the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to what? Idolatry. You literally forsake all idols. Now, because idols are never idle, You and I, we need to keep focusing on Jesus, but we need to forsake these idols. And notice what he says. He says, put to death. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That's a pretty strong word. It's not tolerating them. It's not ignoring them. He literally, you think of them as dead. It, It constitutes the idea of like, You are continually in the process of extinguishing 
evil desires or lusts. You don't literally, like, kill yourself. No, that's not it. But what you do is you, all these evil desires that are within you, you, like, consider them, I'm dead to these things because I am now united and focused on Christ. Now, it's kind of like if you were working on a machine and it's got these big rollers and these belts, and all of a sudden, like, your fingers slip into some of those rollers or into the belt. What do you do? What happens if that happens? Anybody? Some of you might have first-hand experience like this, right? What happens? you like, I'm getting my hand out of there. You will do whatever it takes, right? You don't like, oh, a couple of my fingers in there? Oh, well, may as well just go the whole way through, right? You don't just give up, right? You're going to do whatever it takes to not get just chewed up by that machine. That is the attitude that you need to have when it comes to idolatry. Friends, this is not a carnival. This is the war. You've got to fight it. You've got to see this is very real. And so he says, put these things to death. And the first thing he says, consider yourselves dead to what? Immorality. This is the Greek word pornea. We get our word pornography for it. But it's the big, large Greek word that covers all sexual uh, activity outside of marriage. So, for instance, it covers adultery. By the way, if you've got someone hitting your radar that could destroy your life, I got a verse for you. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. And that's what happens. Destruction. But pornea covers not just adultery, but incest, homosexuality, uh, premarital sex. I want you to know something. God is the creator and the designer of life, okay? He's the one who has ordained how to have a truly fulfilling life, including a truly fulfilling, fulfilling sexuality. He hates the misuse of sex. He has the same attitude that you do when you tell your children, don't play with fire, right? Why? Why do you tell your children not to play with fire? Is fire bad? No. There's nothing wrong with fire. Fire is actually pretty good. It cooks food, keeps our house warm. I mean, there's lots of good purposes and uses for fire. But the problem is when one uses fire in the wrong way, fire can destroy. And the same goes true with sex. If you're using it the wrong way, you're going about the wrong ways, that you're, you're following the patterns of this world and you've adopted this mindset, everyone else's may as well, Friends, that is going to have huge implications in your life. If you're single, I'll just tell you this. Premarital involvement erodes trust. What it does, it, it places you in a very unstable foundation for marriage because it's built on compromise rather than commitment. It replaces godliness with guilt. And when I get an opportunity to speak with singles, I got a message for them. That's this. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. You really want intimacy? Physical, emotional, spiritual? You want that? And I know everyone does. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. And what you want to have is some well-thought-out biblical convictions before the heat of the moment. You want to think it through before the situation arises. He says you need to consider yourself dead to Immorality. The next one he lists is impurity. This is the idea that it goes beyond sexual acts of sin to encompass evil thoughts, words, intentions, 
you know, like romance novels and pornography and sexually explicit lyrics and music and songs and videos, all of that. Like just some of the trash and vulgarity that's going on in, in all these texts or in Snapchats so you can't see it later on. It's all covered there. Impurity. Passion has the idea of strong, unbridled lust, evil desire. Speaks of this intense and often violent craving and greed, which could be translated covetousness. It's the desire to gain more, especially for those things are forbidden. Covetousness or greed is the opposite of contentment. It's the opposite of finding your contentment and satisfaction in God. You just got to have more. And it can even be more of evil stuff. And so there's something interesting about greed. Greed always hides itself from its victims. You know, when I, you talk with people and sometimes they have real issues causing a lot of pain and problems in their life, I very rarely have someone tell me, Grant, I got a greed problem. Because they never see it. Even if it's apparent, they don't see it. Because greed has a way of being rather blinding that way. He says, all of this, you know what? It amounts to idolatry. You know, our job is to be putting out fires, right? What are you doing? Cultivating this which you've been saved from. You're supposed to be preventing them, not playing with these sort of things. In fact, the way forward out of despair is to discern the idols that are emerging. But it's more than just discerning. You know what else you need to do? You need to be focusing on Jesus, filling your life with him. Our fears and our inner barrenness, what it does is it's going to try to make an idol out of love, power, success, and it functions like a narcotic. You have to keep, you need it in order to find some sort of fulfillment. And it's like you, you won't obey God because your idol is consuming you. You know what the most famous moral code is in the world? You know what it is? Okay, well, we used to have it in our public schools, but we decided that this, this isn't helping with the kind of direction that we'd like to be going. So we took it out. You know what it's called? The Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay, we have some vague recollection of the Ten Commandments. Remember the first one? I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Remember? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. If you're a thinking person, you're like, what, what are the other gods? What, what possibly could he be talking about? And uh, God knew that we would have such a question. So the very next verse, he answered it. Second commandment. You shall make for yourself, not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Because you know what? We can turn in anything into an idol. He says, I don't want you to worship any of those things. I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to worship me. I want to fill your life because I made you. I created you. So we forsake idols. And you might see some idol issues in your life. You need to address them at a heart level. If you ever tried to restore like an old car and it's got like a bunch of rust on it, you could go, oh, man. I know what we do. We just put a nice coat of paint on this, and it's going to look great. And it will for a short time. But what will happen if you have not addressed the rust issue? Well, the rust is going to show back up, and your pretty little paint job's all going to go away. Why? Because you never addressed the real issue where the rust was coming from. That's why we need heart transformation. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to believe in him. That's why we need to take this seriously. 
And I want you to see in verse 5, he says, Consider the outcome of those who are disobedient. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. If you are idolatrous and you have never trusted Jesus, all you've got coming is God's just wrath against sin. It is why you need to believe in him. And he says, verse 7, Consider you've been delivered, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. That was your story. That was the story of the Thessalonians. I can assure you, verse 5 is the story of a lot of folks here today, right? But you've been changed. You have turned to God from idols. You're now serving him. So we don't want to go back to this old way of life. And so what you do is you make it your aim so as to not to sin, can you imagine, like, if one of our police officers or one of our soldiers kind of had it as their goal, was like, you know, if I'm ever in an intense situation where they're shooting guns, I don't want to get hit very much. That's not a good idea? No. No. Our soldiers, our officers, they are trained to not get hit. They wear protection. They are trained to avoid getting hit. But do you know what? If we kind of like, well, it's idolatry, great, take it a little too seriously, it's not totally wrong. I do see a little bit of what you're saying. Friends, it's like getting hit. This makes absolutely no sense. So we focus on Christ and we forsake idols. Two sides of the same coin. And it's not like, well, I better change or else God's going to get me. Because that's kind of a self-centered approach. No. What it is is we rejoice over God and his sacrificial love for us. We keep focusing on Jesus. And as we do, we really get a hatred of sin. I, I cannot wait to be in the presence of the Lord because I am tired of this struggle. I don't like it. I don't want it. But I am here and I want to focus on Jesus and I need to forsake idols. I, I want to make sure that you've got a game plan on how to face temptations because you've got them, don't you? I do. Let me give you a simple game plan. How to deal with temptation. Recognize when you're facing a temptation. Identify it. Just say it. This I am being tempted by this. That'll actually help really diffuse the situation. And then second, respond by immediately saying no. And it's sometimes helpful to say it out loud. Okay? Like, no. All right? You're not going there. Like 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as alien strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So you abstain. You say no. And then you refocus your heart back upon the Lord. It could be a quick prayer. You could cover a verse. You could uh, open your Bible. You could call a friend. You could change the channel. You could even turn the TV off. There's no penalty for that even. You do whatever it takes to change the situation and refocus your heart back on the Lord. And then, like he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And then you just remember who you are in Christ and what you have to lose. I like to go running in the country. Uh, One of the things I don't like about running in the country is I don't like when little dogs, or not so little dogs, come after me and bite me, okay? And it's happened. I actually know where they all live. And when I go running, I watch, even if it's been years since Little Red Rover came running over, okay, I, I watch just to see. And they're, and I, like, is the gate closed? Is it open? There's these two dogs that are behind this metal fence. They cannot wait to get after me, but they're always locked in. But I am always on alert. Why? I don't like to be bitten. I don't like anything about it wrecks my day. I don't like the pain. I don't like any of it. Friends, that's the approach we got to have. You've got places that this is dangerous. You need to be on the alert. 
You walk and run through life, but you make sure that you're not consumed by the dogs that are looking to destroy you. And what happens if you have sinned? Well, you repent. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, our hearts, like John Calvin said, they're an idol factory. And that's why John wrote, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. You know, God is jealous. Did you know that? He's jealous. Because idols are never idle, we must be intentional in our walk with Christ and in our war within. You see, God doesn't want us feasting on the garbage piles of this world, and especially the things that we've been saved from. Kind of like that cartoon, there was this comic strip, they had this dog, and he's, he's drinking water out of a toilet bowl, okay? And, and there's this little caption, like what the dog is thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. Right? <laughs> Friends, that's our life when we're looking at idolatry to be our source of strength and peace and joy. It's like we're going to the stagnant, crummy substitutes, and they always fail us. Can I tell you something? When you let go of something or someone as your idol, and you focus on Jesus and have true worship, you know what happens? All of a sudden, you can actually enjoy people, and you can enjoy your job, and you can enjoy things because you've got the right perspective. You can actually move forward because the pressure's off, because the focus is on Jesus and living for his glory. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes, Idols generate false beliefs, such as, if I cannot achieve X, then my life won't be valid. Or, since I have lost or failed at Y, now I can never be happy or forgiven. And then he illustrates this with a girl that had been in his church. A young woman named Mary was an accomplished musician who once attended my church. For many years, she had battled mental illness and had checked in and out of psychiatric institutions. She gave me permission as her pastor to speak to her therapist. This is what the therapist said. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her. Her counselor went on to say, and they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She is quite good but she's never reached the top of her profession, and she cannot live with the idea that she has disappointed her parents. Medications help to manage her depression, but they could not get to the root of it. Her problem was a false belief driven by an idol. She told herself, if I cannot be a well-known violinist, I have let down my parents, and my life is a failure. She was distressed and guilty enough to die. When Mary began to believe the gospel, that she was saved by grace and not by musicianship, and that though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord shall take me in. She began to get relief from her idolatrous need for her parents' approval. And in time, her depression and anxiety began to lift, and she was able to reenter life and her musical career. So little children, guard yourself from idols. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts all too well. And when we look at passages like this, we get a glimpse. And so for the person who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, that they just turn from self and sin. And right now, just pray with me and say, God, I get idolatry because that has been my life. I, today, I, I trust in Jesus. I believe I ask for forgiveness of sins, and I ask that Jesus would be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, uh, 
Certainly we recognize idol issues. God, would you purge us and cleanse us and wash us? Would you continue to fuel a passion for loving you and knowing Jesus? And so, God, we commit our lives to you. We pray that you'd be glorified through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.